to kick off episode 354 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Rabbit Ears. It's from the album Superstorm. It's from a band called Blue Wave Theory. They're based in New Jersey, and they gave us permission to play this song on the show. This is a really cool album. Check it out over at bluewavetheory.bandcamp.com when you're done listening to the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Thank you for tuning in, downloading, streaming this episode, however it is you listen to podcasts. Thanks for making Monster Kid Radio part of your podcast diet this week. I'm stoked. We've got a new person on the show this week. This is awesome. But we also have an old friend. I'm going to get to that here in a second because we've got some feedback. I have an email from Tim Durbin. He was on the show last year, last June, episode 323, and he and I talked about the movie The Most dangerous game uh, he can be found at viewing the classics.blogspot.com or classics on the tube.blogspot.com and here is his email hi derek i just finished listening to your latest episode with dwight kemper discussing frankenstein meets the space monster and i enjoyed it thoroughly mr kemper always brings a lot of amusing observations impressions and anecdotes to your podcast and i laughed heartily listening to this installment while driving I've seen the movie a couple of times and have critically dismissed it in the past, but can't deny that I enjoyed some of the low-budget guerrilla filmmaking employed and have a new appreciation for it after the added background you two shared. I also appreciated Mr. Kemper's recollections of seeing the film when it first came out. Us second and third generation monster kids have never had that experience, and it's always good to hear how those who had the opportunity had their imaginations captured. Hopefully Mr. Kemper will be back to share more recollections and entertain us again soon. I recently purchased his book, Who Framed Boris Karloff, and I can't wait to read it. And thank you for the insightful commentary and background on the first Frankenstein film, the 1910 Edison Studios production. While Karloff's iconic performance may have set the standard for all Frankenstein productions, I think it's always important to remember what came before and celebrate it for its own accomplishments. And the story you shared of the life of the surviving print and its owner was a compelling and interesting one. Thanks again, Derek, for all you do and keep up the great work. Tim. Tim, thanks for the kind words regarding what we're doing here with the year in Frankenstein and Monster Kid Radio. The 1910 version of the movie, it's fascinating to me. I don't know if a script still exists, or I guess they called them scenarios back then because it was a silent film. I would love to read that. Uh, I don't know if it's in that book that I mentioned last week or not. I should double check. But it's a fascinating uh, little film, and to think... <laughs> that was the first time it made it to the, the silver screen and, and what came from that. It's, it's pretty impressive and amazing to me. I want to talk about Dwight here for a second. I loved having him on the show. Dwight's a heck of a guy. He's a great author. He's a good friend. I love having him on Monster Kid Radio, and I want to have him on the show in the future. I'd be interested to hear what you think about who framed Boris Karloff. If you do read it, please call in or write in and let me know what you thought of the book. 
Dwight, I do want to have on the show again in the future, in the near future. I just I love chatting with him. But he's been dealing with some health issues. Uh, those of you who follow him on Facebook know that he's had to go to the hospital. He's home now. He's got a doctor's appointment coming up, I think, even today as of him recording this. Dwight, please know that Monster Kid Radio has its fingers and tentacles crossed, hoping for the best for you medically. Just if any of the doctors you're seeing are named Frankenstein, you might ask for a second opinion. I'm just, just saying. Tim, thanks for writing in. I had a quick little email from listener Larry in Missouri. He just asked me if I ever had contacted the guy from Monster Model Review on YouTube for an episode. And the answer is no, I haven't. And I haven't even watched the YouTube channel. I mean, I'm aware of it, but I really haven't sat down to watch any of the videos. Sounds like something I really need to check out. So thanks for the kind of inadvertent recommendation. <laughs> And if it's, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, if you dig it, if you recommended it, I'm sure it's solid. All right. Now I have one other email and this one, I already emailed him directly, but I want to talk about it here on the show as well. This came from Groovy Mike, the werewolf of Washington. So he originally emailed back in November and I never really got to it. And I don't know if it got lost in all the other emails that I get. I know that I am behind on a couple of things email-wise, like that Barbara Steele photo contest. Yeah, that's still coming. So I apologize. I am really sorry that this happened. So I'm going to read the original email he sent me in November, and then I'm going to read his follow-up because he had some other things as well. Derek, in the spirit of things, or uh, Thanksgiving, and inspired by our latest episode, I decided to finally contact you. I want you to know that one of the things I'm most thankful for this year is my discovery of Monster Kid Radio. I found your show through a promo on Chris and Cindy Franklinstein's Supermates show on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, and I've been working my way through your archives all year. This has been a very stressful year for me and my family due to health and financial woes, and listening to your show has been a great way to relax and reconnect with some old fiends, uh, uh, friends from the golden age of monster movies. I've been a monster kid ever since I can remember. Growing up in the 70s, my horror heroes were the classics Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff, and Lon Chaney Jr., and Vincent Price. I was also a huge Hammer fan, like you. My favorite actor of all time is Peter Cushing. My man. Uh, that was something I added, not him. Anyway, I was a devote reader when I could get it of Famous Monsters of Filmland and Marvel's Monsters of the Movies magazine. Unless we forget the late, great Starlog. Yes, I'm also an old school Trekkie and proud of it. My man. Again, that's me. Anyway, since the advent of the slasher film in the 80s to the torture porn of today, I've completely lost interest in most modern horror. Thankfully, in this amazing age of wonders beyond the wildest dreams of H.G. Wells and Jules Verne, we have these shiny little round miracles called DVDs of almost anything we could possibly want from the classic, and as you say, not-so-classic, monster movies of yesteryear. <laughs> I'm not a social media maven, a veritable fiend without a Facebook, so I'm not in contact with the vast community of Monster Kids. I live up in Washington, which isn't too far from your own stalking grounds. I'm not aware of many Monster Kids in my area. Let me know if you dig up any. Meanwhile, I hope to be able to keep in contact with you and even meet you in person sometime in the near future. The way you described the going on in Oregon on your podcast makes it sound like Portland should be the Monster Kid capital of the USA. I hope you will continue to produce your fine podcast and expand your eerie empire with the planned Monster Kid Radio Network for many years to come. I'll be listening. Your neighbor to the north, Groovy Mike. Now, he also emailed 
a couple months later, earlier this month, said he hadn't had any response from me since Thanksgiving, so he thought he'd try to make contact again. I'm still listening to every new episode of MKR, as well as catching up with your older shows. I think you have the best podcast dedicated to the classic monsters of Yesterfear, and I'm enjoying every groovy and ghoulish second of it. As Frankenstein is my all-time favorite monster, with King Kong being a close second, I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have planned for the dear boy's 200th birthday year. Hope to hear from you soon. Happy New Year. Groovy Mike, the werewolf of Washington. So, Mike, again, I know I said something to you via email. I am so sorry. The email got lost somewhere in my inbox. That's that's on me, and I apologize. I am glad you're still listening, and I, I hope you're still listening now. I am enjoying the heck out of producing the show and hearing from listeners, people who have discovered the show, or even people listening to the show from the very beginning who have never called in before or written in before. I mean, that's that's awesome, too. And you're right. You're not that far away from me up there in Washington. So, yeah, the possibilities of us meeting in person someday might, might actually happen. Now, I'm not an original monster kid. I think Tim in his email, referred to being a second or third generation Monster Kid. And that's that's kind of me, too. I, I actually refer to myself sometimes as Monster Kid X. And I'm not going to say why, because it's a project that I plan on rolling out here very soon. Just need to get some graphics together and some content. And anyway, I, you know, I'm not an original Monster Kid. So I didn't have the opportunity to buy the original famous Monsters of Filmland. Although I did have an opportunity to buy things like Starlog and Cinefantastique off the shelf. And I think there was a short run when maybe Ray Ferry was running it. Famous Monsters did turn up on the magazine rack at the Hastings store uh, where I lived in Bozeman, Montana for a little while. But that wasn't really the same. And I'm not going to go into the Ray Ferry thing. Um, You know, the thing about modern horror and 80s slashers and torture porn and all that, you know, that really resonates with me because being somebody who was born in the 70s and really kind of grew up in the 80s. And I, I just, I was exposed to a lot of that when I was finally allowed to watch R-rated movies. And I loved it. Man, I loved it. I was a huge Friday the 13th fan for a long time. And of course, my previous podcast, Mail Order Zombie, where I did nothing but zombie movies, including a lot of modern stuff or stuff from the 80s. So a lot of gore fests and, and, and splatter flicks and things like that. And I, I while I think Mail Order Zombie gave me a lot. And I did find myself in one heck of a community of amazingly creative people and made some amazing friends during that time. Something kind of clicked for me a few years ago, and I just kind of stopped being interested in that. And, and I've been trying to figure out what was the catalyst what made that that change for me and then i will talk about this again in in another thing i've got cooking this year uh, but there was just something that that kind of took me away from that and i just i i don't really find a lot of interest in that anymore but my love for the classics and sometimes not so classic i man it's just it's who I am. It, it revitalizes me. And that's not to say I don't go see modern movies. I did go see The Shape of Water, for example. But when I watch a movie like that, I can't help but see the love for the classics in that. I don't know. I don't know if I'm making a lot of sense. I don't think I was even really prepared to talk about that when I was going through emails uh, here on the show. So forgive this bit of uh, weird self-reflection and Accept my apologies again for not reading or catching your email back in November. 
one of the things that I'm most thankful for, and I know we're way past Thanksgiving, but I am so thankful for the community that is gathered around Monster Kid Radio and being able to be part of your tribe. Thank you. So if you want to email us, you can always send us an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com and I'll do my best to make sure I catch the email right away and read it on an upcoming episode. Of course, you can also call us and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. And while I know not all of you are on Facebook, well, Monster Kid Radio is. So you can always drop us a line there or leave comments about the show or anything else you want to talk about Monster Kid related on Facebook. All right. This week's episode. This one's fun. This one I, I was kind of nervous going into because it was with somebody that I've never met before, but I had heard him and I'd been reading him even longer. Dr. Drek, a.k.a. Michael Ledgy, who's been on the show and is a great friend of Monster Kid Radio, a great horror host, asked if I would be interested in meeting with and having an author, a film historian, a podcaster, and somebody who spends a lot of time reminding people about some classic forgotten horror films on the show. I'm referring to Michael H. Price, one of the men behind the Forgotten Horrors book series, which if you haven't read, oh, man, there are some incredibly cool movies that the world at large had forgotten about, but Michael H. Price and his collaborators have not. He's also got a regular podcast called the Forgotten Horrors Podcast. So, Michael H. Price and Michael Ledgy are joining me this week. And, well, my middle name's Michael, so I'm going to say this is an episode of Two and a Half Michaels on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. It's going to be a lot of fun. I had a great time chatting with these two. The conversation kind of goes all over the place, which is the way I like it. Uh, we start a little bit about film conservation and the differences between seeing movies on film versus digital and why we prefer the older movies to the newer movies and the techniques that are being used. And we eventually get to a round of the classic five. And then we talk about our top three forgotten horrors movies. That's all happening. And then after that, the year of Frankenstein continues here on the show. We're going to talk briefly about the 1931 universal classic Frankenstein film. And why not? I'll tell you about an event coming up on Sunday. So if you're in the Portland, Oregon area, you're going to want to stay tuned because we're going to see a couple of movies. If you, well, if you want to join me, you know, we'll see some movies together. Otherwise, you'll hear about it on a later episode. That's all coming. We're going to talk about all of that and probably a little bit more right after this. The cold, glossy pages of True Magazine call the killer shrew the world's most savage mammal. You'll never venture into a forest alone after you see The Killer Shrews with James Best and Ingrid Good, motion picture horror masterpiece, The Killer Shrews. Hello, Christopher. What insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? <laughs> People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Well, let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but there are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. <laughs> oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. 
Once a month, we pick something and review and discuss it. <laughs> that sure is nice of us. <laughs> sure. Well, why don't you click over to Orphan Entertainment and remind yourself a little more about the show. Oh, will do. Let's see, that's at orphanentertainment.com. And yeah, it looks like we're available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh, hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie someday? Mm-hmm, we'll see, Christopher. We'll see. This. There's never been a pattern to these Pacific vanishings. They seem to happen at random. Communication stopped. The crew's too busy to handle it to, to report. Handle what? Something that can catch up with the plane and snatch the people out of it. The Navy versus the Night Monsters. Starring Mamie Van Doren, who triggered earthly emotions in the midst of unearthly events. Anthony Isley, fighting fiendish, crawling things. From Antarctica, frozen for a million years, to a small naval outpost in the Pacific comes a cargo of deviltry, devastation, death. Attacking bodies, destroying minds. <laughs> Chilling terror in a desperate, endless fight against a nameless horror. Those things are multiplying. There's no telling how fast. I wouldn't be surprised if it got up to be hundreds, maybe even thousands. The whole island would be covered with them. This is Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Monster Kid Radio listeners, I've got an old friend and what I hope is a new friend on the show this week. We're going to be talking about some forgotten horrors, but by the time this episode is done, I don't think you're going to forget about our new friend here. Mike Price, the man behind the Forgotten Horse books. He can also be heard on the Forgotten Horse podcast. Mr. Price, how are you, sir? Hey, glad to be here. Mighty fine. Mighty fine. And the old friend that I was referring to. If you're a fan of horror hosts, you know this man's work. And he's been on the show quite a bit. And as far as I'm concerned, not enough. I love talking to horror hosts. I love talking to Dr. Drek, Michael Leggy. How you doing? All right. How are you all? Glad to be here. You bet. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing great. Uh, 2018, so far, so good. I hope it's treating you guys so far, so good. Been very productive. Very productive. Got uh, got a couple of new developments in the Forgotten Horrors series and and some related graphic novel projects. So we're rocking along. Ooh. Well, myself, I'm uh, in between doing a new season. We will we'll be doing our new season uh, probably around April. We'll start doing some more obscure mm-hmm. horror films. <laughs> <laughs> or weird westerns or borderline sci-fi stuff coming up this year. 
You say weird westerns, and I get really excited. I love that subgenre. Mm. I once had a, uh, a would-be publisher who would have loved to accept the first Forgotten Horrors book, except he objected to the preponderance of Gothic westerns. And uh, I said, well, you know, a, book, a cowboy movie can't be a horror movie, too, huh? Hey, can it? <laughs> said, uh, well, I think we'll take a Pasadena on this offer. I think it's it's two great tastes that go well together. I, I love bet. the westerns. I love you mix them up, and I'm I'm a happy man. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned forgotten horrors. Direct mentioned obscure forgotten horrors. That's what I know you from, uh, Mike. Is yeah. the series of forgotten horrors books? And there's been how many of the books have there been now? Well, if you count the spinoffs, we're approaching fifteen volumes. Wow. I think George Turner and I started writing the original book in 1975. It took us, oh, about four to approximately four or five years to get the manuscript into the shape we wanted. And uh, the first volume came into print in 1980, 1979, 1980. Once an English publisher in 79, American publisher in 80. Hadn't been out of print since, although we have changed publishers from time to time. I did see that. Like Midnight Marquis got one or two of them, and uh huh. Yeah, it seems like you can get them, well, pretty much anywhere now. At this point, I see them on Amazon all the time. That's the desired objective, and uh, we've had very good results. At the advice of my lawyer, several years ago, I uh, bit the bullet and incorporated my studio as a publishing company, and uh, then came the uh, very helpful print-on-demand publishing platform, which enables a lot greater freedom of self-publishing without having to maintain large inventories. We've had a number of authors on the show, uh, Dr. Trek included, and that's pretty much the preferred outlet, it seems to be, is to, to be completely independent. There were there were times when uh, before the before the print on demand service when when we had what was uh, referred to as the vanity press where you would pay a make believe publisher to print X number of <laughs> copies of your book uh, it don't work that way no more uh, <laughs> when when the when the print on demand paradigm or platform came into being and was perfected over a period of several years uh, it proved to be my gosh we can do we can retain aesthetic control content control uh, quality control maintain the standards that we were accustomed to using in the conventional uh, inventory publishing racket and nobody has to put up with you know storing a thousand copies of of, uh, of a certain book. It enables greater quality. It enables greater quantity of titles. The gatekeepers are gone. So you can now there you go. really focus on your passions and put those out. Oh, into yeah. Life. And and I still deal with the conventional commercial publishing industry, too, um, as long as they approach me with the right offer. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, we're, we'll be doing a conventional commercial edition of George Turner's The Making of King Kong, revised up to the present day. Yeah, I've done a number of um, graphic novels, including uh, a couple of... Uh, uh, classic horror comic book collections for IDW and Yo Books. That's fantastic. And uh, that's Y-O-E. <laughs> and many good results there, but to have both, uh, well, it's, it's you know, your, your cake and eating it too, kind of like that. 
it's fan- I think that's probably the best way to go is to be like a yeah. hybrid author where you've got you know, your, your traditional deals and you got your own things. Mm-hmm. And, and Dr. Drecker did not mean to cut you off, man. What were you going to say? <laughs> Even people like me can get published. <laughs> well, you, uh, you, have a product that, uh, you have a product that breaks a lot of rules of conventional commercial publishing but is nonetheless valid. And having that control, well, you know, I've seen the results of your first book. It looks, uh, it looks good. It feels good. It tastes good. And it seems to be performing well. Yeah, I actually wrote a second book, and your uh, cohort, John Woolley, actually contributed to it. Splendid. Splendid. That's what we do. Yeah. You know, you gotta, yeah. got to encourage. Um, George Turner and I didn't have a lot of encouragement going into this racket. Uh, we did have a friendship with Bill Everson, whose name you'll recognize, although Bill was kind of envious. You know, he, uh, When George published the original making of King Kong, in '75, the first response came from Everson, and his and his and his comment was, "Well, that's the book I wanted to write." <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I I learned early on that you don't want to be territorial in this business. Uh, it's like, no, you might be an authority on some topic, but that doesn't mean that you invented the topic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've we've run across a lot of that. We. Uh, uh, we've put up with the uh, crimes against culture of the Medved brothers with their idiotic 50 worst films lists. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of disparagement masquerading as uh, thoughtful criticism. And uh, no, that's that's not the way the world works. Criticism need not be glowing or or over enthusiastic, but neither need it be belittling. And. Uh, yeah, I think I think Turner and I reached a pretty good balance there with that first book, uh, especially since we were dealing with pictures that the conventional film scholarship establishment really didn't care to recognize. That is the the Poverty Row Studios. You know, something that I've picked up from Doctor Dreck over the years, and and I don't know if I've actually said this to you directly on the show, uh, Michael, but. I have said it on Facebook and I have said it in passing that for a long time I referred to a lot of these movies as I know it's bad, but I still love it. But you kind of checked me on that. And, and you know, Drek actually got me thinking that, you know, if the movie makes me happy, if I walk away from it smiling, it's not a bad movie. Yeah, exactly. The, the One of the most cowardly pieces in the critical arsenal is to call a certain this or that film a guilty pleasure like you're apologizing for admiring it don't apologize own it and yeah it don't never apologize nothing to be sorry for if you see something in a film that you admire hey what's the first what's the first rule of of uh, critical appreciation here it is there's no accounting for taste <laughs> I, I really do mean that in the nicest way possible because it's like, yeah, you like it. Uh, Duke Ellington said there are two kinds of music, good music and bad music, and you decide which is which. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. That's a good way to kind of look yeah. at some of these things. Well, the burden of proof is on the, is on the person doing the appraisal. A lot of that uh, applies to people's opinion of certain actors, too. You know, you'll have an actor that somebody will love, and another one says, oh, they can't act at all. They stink. It's just mm-hmm. objective, subjective, you know. Mm-hmm. Very subjective, and uh, I've come full circle on a lot of actors and actresses that I might not have appreciated uh, 
once, but the more you know about them and the more you're exposed to them and the more you put them in context, especially in context with their own bodies of work, uh, the likelier you are to find something worth appreciating. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, uh, George Turner had no use for the method school of acting. He uh, despised Marlon Brando. For what reason? Well, just because he didn't like him. <laughs> <laughs> and the enunciation of of that method style where, where slurred speech becomes the norm, um, not for all tastes, but if you get yourself into the frame of mind for any new kind of thinking, any new kind of style, any new any new approach to acting, you're probably going to find that it grows on you. And so most indulgences are acquired tastes. The other thing, too, is that uh, when it comes to the era that you're watching, you have to reset your mind to that era, just like a lot oh, yeah, of people yeah. They won't watch black and white movies, which is really stupid. Well, yeah. um, you know, you know, if you watch a, you watch a silent movie, you're going to have a certain mindset. If you watch the early talkies, they get a completely different acting style from today, and you just got to adjust your uh, viewing to that. Oh yeah, put yourself in a 1925 frame of mind if you're going to watch the Phantom of the Opera, right. and uh, and remember that uh, a lot of the early talkies still contain silent screen acting styles. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what we used to call playing to the balcony. Right. <laughs> theatrical. Well, very theatrical. And and they had the restrictions of the technical too, where they, they didn't have the ability to move the camera and the microphone around. So, you know, a lot of the oh, physical yeah. and body acting and the staging was very static and that certainly had an impact on the acting. But mm-hmm. oh yeah, the the immobility, the once in a while one finds some really nice experiments with trying to move that camera around in an early talkie, never mind that the the camera was enclosed in a soundproof box so that the motor, the whirring of the motor, wouldn't register on the soundtrack. Uh, movies, movies are a very plastic, uh, evolving idiom. They don't stand still for long. And... Uh, because I'm just wondering when, when we're going to get back to real film as a as a standard norm. But uh, in the meantime, it's interesting to watch the current evolution. You know, it's something that I try to apply to when I watch uh, modern movies with all the uh, the CG and the technical and everything else, and just you know, that's just the product of the time that they're being made in. Now, I personally prefer the older films, but. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's hard to keep that in mind yeah. and not disparage them. Oh, it's CGI. I don't like it. You know, it's it's something to keep in mind. Depends on it. Depends on who's handling. Yeah. Who's responsible for the computer generated effects? You look at Guillermo del Toro, uh, his his films uh, over the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, he has used computer generated effects, uh, but he always approaches them as though he were Ray Harryhausen. It's hard to find a yeah. It would be hard to find a more important or a, or yeah. a, you know a role model to look at, I suppose, in areas when it comes oh, to creating yeah. the creatures. Well, yeah. I mean, and 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 Del Toro is himself a role model as of as of uh, well several years ago when his when his body of work just like proved unignorable either by the art film, the mainstream film, or the genre film aficionados, and to this day, Yermo still he doesn't dismiss himself but he still characterizes himself as a as a fan uh the enthusiasm is uh, and it's and it's a it's a very healthy honest 
fresh enthusiasm that you see in his work uh, in person, in the finished films, throughout, uh, where he just really loves what he does, and he loves uh, the people who share that interest. The first time I dealt with Guillermo del Toro was on a film called Kronos in 1993, which uh, my partners at the Dallas, at the USA Film Festival in Dallas, brought Kronos to America for the first time. That was his first exposure to to an audience outside Mexico. And uh, talk about appreciative, he still talks about that. It's nice to find people with uh, organic attitudes in a digital technical sphere. It's a really good way to put it. It's really good. And his uh, acceptance speech at the Golden Globes, I think, says it all when he you know, mentions Lon Chaney. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he knows where he's coming from, oh, and, yeah. he's, uh, and he's and he's and he's still he's lighting the way for a lot of others yet to come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing too is uh, a, a lot of uh, movies, mainstream or more modern movies that I see, is that. I, I'm thinking I'm not watching a movie. I'm watching an amusement park ride. Oh yeah, yeah. Where's I, the story? Yeah. <laughs> I do not miss the days. Well, actually, I, I, I'm nostalgic for the old school newsroom. I haven't I haven't dealt in that in years, but uh, those no longer exist anymore. Newspapers have, have pretty well strangled themselves. But uh, what I don't miss is going to see every lousy movie that comes out of Hollywood. <laughs> and, and, there was, and there was time, you know, when I was running the entertainment desk at the Daily, uh, where like, I was seeing approximately one film a day. Wow. Uh. And, then re- and, and then having to register a thoughtful opinion on it. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I keep track of all the movies that I watch over over the course of the year just to kind of see you know what I watched what I needed to watch more of that sort of thing and I watched over 200 movies last year but only 17 I saw in the theaters <laughs> Well you know? yeah there's so? uh, yeah, that's that's an operational castle I think more than yeah. anything else Yeah I think theaters are not as clean as they used to be I I ran the uh, uh 20, approximately 20 screens for AMC during the late 90s. That is, I was the grouchy landlord over AMC theaters <laughs> in a certain location. <laughs> and, and it's like, whoa, the operational standards ain't what they used to be. Because my uncle had an uncle who was a manager for the old interstate circuit back in the mid-century. He kept his theaters hospital clean. Nice. And it's just not mm. right to expect a person to fork out. What's a movie ticket these days? 15 bucks? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Nine, nine to 15. It's not right to ask a person to fork that sum over and then give them sticky floors and, and the stench of pine saw uh, over a spill. <laughs> it smells like pine saw if you're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're lying, it's like, okay, you don't just pour it on and leave the right. room. Uh, same way with automated, automated projection. Mm-hmm. Digital, digital projection has its charms, but uh, it is also cold. In a way, it's an improvement over putting a, an entire feature-length film on a, on a gigantic horizontal platter and then expecting the machine to take care of itself while it's showing. Yeah, the last, the last projection booth I designed has uh, no platter, runs 35 on two side-by-side projectors with the capability to switch over to 16 millimeter if (laughs) needed, and then decks for all digital media, all digital formats. 
So there's nothing that can't be shown. Certainly there are some theaters that still do it right, but I think the big chains, yeah, certainly. Sure. Yeah, it can be a struggle. I, I know I'm very lucky up here in the Portland, Oregon area. We've got a ton of movie theaters mm. here that, that do it right. You know, the Hollywood Theater uh, up here oh, is, yeah. is a beautiful theater on the outside, and it is just they, they do it well. They treat the movies right. And the Hollywood is a good, yeah, yeah. It's a great theater. I'm seeing some hopeful signs from the new management at AMC Theater. Oh, good. So, uh, one never knows. Yeah. They were a very good chain at one time. Uh, I think I just picked a lemon when, when I ended up landlording it over them. But uh, that was one regime of management. And I understand that the new uh, management is trying to get back to the origins. That's good. I think so many of these movies are so much more fun to watch on the big screen, as long as it's not like, you know, Dr. Drex said, it's just like an amusement park ride, you know? <laughs> just, right. You know? It's, it's especially fun to get to see a, a pristine 35 archival print on a big screen. Yes. Yes. Uh, the uh, uh, One of the early film festivals I produced, we did a reunion of the principal actors from To Kill a Mockingbird, oh. speaking of Southern Gothics. Wow. And, uh, and uh, starting, I mean, Gregory Peck and right on down to Brock Peters, uh, with the, uh, everybody but Robert Duvall, and of course the kids were quite grown up by this time, but uh, did a nice little reunion with the original starring players and got Universal to lend us the archival 35. And it, boy, it it looked great on that big screen. That's that's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, I'll tell you what, you guys, we're recording this on a Sunday. You guys have a week to get here next Sunday here in Portland at the Northwest Film Center. They're showing King Kong on thirty five millimeter. Hot damn! And I can I cannot wait. They're doing Vampire later that night. It's going to be digital, but King Kong in thirty five. I am looking forward to that. Like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> You're going to remember that one. Uh huh. Oh yep. yeah. Oh yeah. I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and I was mm-hmm. I was lucky enough. I used to go uh, indoor theaters a lot then. So I was lucky enough to see reissues of Forbidden Planet, War of the Worlds. Oh, wow. Um, oh, wow. I saw the original t- first time around for things like Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, things like that, and uh, Jason yeah, and the Ark. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was as late as the early 70s you were seeing. Well, MGM did a beautiful triple bill in 1970 called Titans of Terror. It was <laughs> the 1932 Jekyll and Hyde, which had not been an MGM release, but they chose to put it out in their package. The 32 Jekyll and Hyde, The Mask of Fu Manchu, and Mark of the Vampire. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I actually found, that I have an image of that poster that I had printed up on a hand towel that mm-hmm. I use here at home. So <laughs> mm-hmm. it's a great poster too. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. To, to see that triple feature would be a blast. It's just about seeing these older movies, these classic films on the big screen. Those opportunities are few and far between nowadays, but of course a perennial like King Kong, it's almost a foregone conclusion that it's got to resurface. The reissues historically date from, what, 38? It was 33 original release at 38, then uh, releases reissues during the 40s and 50s, and so forth, right on up into the 1960s. And uh, a lot of them were not necessarily studio-mounted reissues. They were uh, enterprising individual theaters that said, hey, let's bring King Kong back. Okay. And there you go. And, of course, that's one of those pictures that television doesn't really do justice, but you still got to see it from time to time. 
if I'm flipping through channels, and this happens more and more rarely these days, but if I'm flipping through channels and I see something like that, I stop. And Good. that's what I'm doing until the movie's over. So, and I think most of the listeners are like that too. I mean, that's, that's, that's what us monster kids do, man. We love, live for seeing these movies however we can. You've got to get the, got to get the opportunity while it's fresh. It's nice to have a, a good, reliable shelf of discs or cassettes or however you watch movies at home. But, uh, boy, to find something spontaneously cropping up on a, on a, uh, on a little one-long local station or maybe on the Turner Classics Network, uh, yeah, you just, you just gotta drop everything. That's, uh, that's kind of the, uh, the code of the road, as they say. <laughs> but, uh, you had mentioned favorites amongst these however many years of obscurities and oddities. And uh, boy, I tell you what, it's, it's, I'm hard-pressed to winnow down a, a list of titles to just a few. Mm-hmm. Same here. Because, of course, it, they change, they, they, and they they do they really do change. Oh yeah. Uh, one one that might be at the bottom of the list this week will shoot up to the top in a in a week or two, or maybe next year, and and so forth. It's it's a it's a very uh, evolving and malleable field of of uh, interest. May and, I ask uh, a question you know, of of us all? Sure. At what point did we all of us? become aware of these uh, obscure movies and began to appreciate them. <laughs> wow. That's a tough one. That's a, uh, I can probably trace mine, however, to this uncle who ran the movie theaters and kept files in his uh, main theater office on every picture he had ever played since he had become a, a theater well, assistant, manager, later manager, etc., uh, back during the Depression. So I was familiar as a child with pictures like the 1931 Frankenstein, then its sequel, and so forth, 1931 Dracula. But uh, these files of my uncle's, it's like, there's one I've never heard. Of. There's another one I've never heard. Of. <laughs> and 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 he was and he, he was no cinematic snob. He'd he'd uh, he maintained files on the on the big Oscar bait pictures and the and the commercial hits and the large studio blockbusters, just like he maintained files on the little oddities from like monogram pictures and PRC pictures and so forth. And uh, I was fascinated with these smaller titles like the mad monster what could that be <laughs> and here's the press kit on it that shows me what it could be and my uncle uh, says you remember that picture we watched with lon cheney on tv called of mice and men i said yeah he says so well in the mad monster glenn strange does a double take on cheney from mice and men and the wolfman i said what <laughs> And of course, it turned out, yeah, he was right. It was an inside joke that Glenn Strange pulled on his old pal Cheney. So, well, if, okay, if I've got to play a wolf, man, I'm going to play him like Cheney. But then I'm going to I'm going to play him like Cheney doing Lenny doing Larry Talbot. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 of course, uh, uh, Cheney thought it was a great joke because he and Glenn Strange were old roughhousing, hard drinking, card playing buddies. <laughs> Uh, little things like that. Yeah, you reach certain points. And, of course, the, uh, although the my local TV stations didn't really have many of the Poverty Row pictures when I was growing up, I had to acquaint myself with them gradually. But local TV was just overrun with low-budget Hollywood westerns. 
like the like the uh, mm-hmm. Bob Steele, Buster Crab, uh, Billy the Kid, Billy. Uh, there's there's a point where you, where you reach where you realize that the Buster Crab, Billy the Kid series and the, and the Billy Carson series with the same cast, they were the same characters. <laughs> they just changed the character names uh, to keep things interesting. And 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 I I think uh, uh, I had seen. Uh, we're talking about I'm what maybe. 12 or 13 years old, I had seen Bela Lugosi in The Devil Bat, and here on television, not long thereafter, shows up one of these matinee westerns. Uh, wow. I'd have to look up the Wild Horse Phantom. Yes, I wouldn't have to look it up. Wild Horse Phantom shows up on TV, and it's like, wait a minute. Wait a minute, they're using the devil bat to scare somebody. <laughs> Same studio. Waste not, want not. You know, you get a you get the well, we finished shooting that devil bat picture. What do you want to do with this devil bat prop? Oh, stick it in the closets. We'll need it one of these days. <laughs> so that's why I so devoutly admire these poverty row pictures and the studios they came from, because they were consummate preservationists. They might not have thought of themselves that way, but everything that got made got used in one way or another. They didn't have anything to lose. You know, I mean, they, they weren't squandering huge sums of money. Well, for me, I was, uh, as I mentioned, I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and the TV stations that we got around here were in Boston and Providence, Rhode Island. And initially, uh, we were seeing the classics, the universal classics, and I was so-called one of the original monster kids from like the age of six. Mm-hmm. And I loved all of them. But then a phenomenon called UHF TV stations came. And they're sure. the ones that seemed to get all the uh, Poverty Rose stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So then I started to see the PRC stuff, the monograms, the, the, the famous Lugosi monogram nine, and uh, all these other obscurities. And I was like, what are these? Where did these come from? <laughs> and... Mm-hmm. I, I kind of knew that they weren't on the same level as the universal ones, but I didn't dismiss yeah. them either. I no, just no, found you can't this, afford to do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's interesting oddities, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. later on, um, you know, for the past uh, 30 years or so, I've been a so-called underground filmmaker, so I know what it's like to make a film with no money. <laughs> sure. And I, sure. I became to admire them more and more and more. And uh, anybody that does anything halfway decent with no money is a king in my book yeah <laughs> oh yeah we've got a rediscovery in the ninth volume of forgotten horrors recently published called flaming creatures huh. early 60s oh. it's an avant-garde yeah. avant-garde drag queen horror movie <laughs> uh, and the de- and and the declared budget on it was like three hundred dollars wow plus stolen kodak black and white film from an army surplus depot Expired film too. <laughs> yes, expired film, and uh, and and so there you go. And, and you know what was the budget on on some of these PRC or monogram westerns? Well, especially the gothic westerns, they they would be perhaps twenty five thousand dollars, if that much, to shoot. Yeah, and uh, you know, of course, course three hundred dollars is reasonable for an underground film. Uh, Twenty-five thousand is reasonable for a mainstream or conventional commercial matinee western. 
and they thought they were making them for an, uh, for an undiscriminating uh, audience, but in fact they weren't. They were making them for people who took that stuff very seriously. And, uh, you know, I'd just as soon watch a Bob Steele cowboy movie with a with maybe a little scary business in it uh, as I would sit back and watch John Ford's stagecoach over again. Yeah. Yeah, that was something I mentioned to to Derek one time when I was talking to him. Obviously, I have a great appreciation for the classic films, but there's something about these little B-movies that you see them over and over and over, and you always see something Mm -hmm. new. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can see gaffes. You can see compositional errors. You can see a lot of things that make the pictures so much more human. Every picture's got glitches in it. Uh, You uh, find the elements of human fallibility in a picture like that and it just makes it feel feel more like real people had a hand in making it yeah right yeah yeah. well i think that's part of the reason you know you mentioned being an underground filmmaker i used to think i was going to be a filmmaker when i grew up you know and i would make movies with my friends with my video camera that sort of thing you know running around town and shooting all over and say okay you're a vampire here put these things things in or whatever you know and uh, I think that also makes me appreciate some of the lower budget affairs. I've, I've been accused actually over the years of giving lower budget movies more of a pass than the higher budget movies. And, you know, I, may, maybe that's true. I don't know. But I feel like I can connect to a movie like The Devil Bat or, or some of the other Parvati Row Ro films. Well, yeah. There's no way I would have been able to uh, <laughs> connect on the same level with like a James Whale or something like that. But but these guys that are making movies in nine days, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. I get it. Oh, yeah, well, what's the first American vampire movie? I don't mean made in America. I mean, what's the first vampire movie made on hallowed American soil? A lot of people think it's Universal Son of Dracula. It takes place mm-hmm. in the Louisiana bayous. Um, truth is, Pride of Place goes to PRC Pictures. Yeah. Dead Men, Dead Men Walk. Walk. <laughs> Got there somewhat before the big Universal production. I think it's a much more earnest film. Um, Lon Chaney said he really didn't feel right for the role of Dracula. He looks too healthy. Um, <laughs> okay. And the truth is, George Zuko makes a perfect bad guy oh, he's great in that he's uh <laughs> when he goes evil he's evil yeah oh yeah well it's these little studios that really have nothing to lose but plenty to prove that uh that kind of set the bar and uh, yeah sure and I, I i wouldn't hesitate to go back and watch either of those pictures again but uh i gotta say well hey prc got there first didn't get any respect for it its picture probably remained in circulation longer than the Universal picture did because PRC had a habit of not just releasing its pictures but keeping them in circulation over the long term. And then they would sublet a film to a smaller distributor. And and uh, so when the big Universal reissues took place in the post-war years before they showed up, started showing up on commercial television, um, well, PRC had beat them to the punch time and time again just by chronic reissues to small market neighborhood theaters you know for me stumbling into these lower budget movies that sort of thing i I grew up uh, i'm a little bit younger than you two and i grew up uh in the the 70s and 80s and and read a lot of those crestwood house books that the school libraries had uh which which, you know frankenstein dracula all those so i knew the big names in Mm -hmm. the genre you know i knew godzilla i knew king kong and Mm -hmm. i knew a little bit about the golem because he was mentioned in the frankenstein book but really i didn't start 
diving deep into this part of the genre. And I don't think I've told this story before on my show or anywhere else. Uh, one of the guys that I used to run around town with trying to make movies was a guy by the name of Jared. He was actually the guy who introduced me to wanting to make movies because he'd been wanting to make movies since he was a kid. And one year for Christmas, he gave me uh, a VHS bargain basement probably recorded an EP speed copy uh, that he bought from a store for like probably four bucks of attack of the giant leeches. Oh boy. And I looked at it and mm. I was like, like what, what, what is this? I don't even know what this is, man, because I'm still traveling through universal and hammer films and all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I realized what it was and watched it and, and it just kind of like opened a door for me to all these other non-universal, non-hammer, non-big movies. Right. But still so good. And I mean, I love Attack of the Giant Leeches. It's a great film. And I love Ken Clark and I love Yvette Vickers. Uh, they're wonderful in the movie. And, it, mm-hmm. you know, ever since then, anytime I go by a, a rack that's got those collections of like the 50 movies that Mill Creek puts out, oh, I don't yeah. care if the transfer is bad. I'm still going to look at the title list and see what's in there and right. see if there's something I don't recognize. Because if there is, that means I need to see it. And the Leeches well, movie is uh, Bruno Vinsoto's uh, finest hour. <laughs> oh, I'll say. <laughs> yeah, uh, my my stage production company did a uh, a live action version of uh, a Dallas made picture called The Killer Shrews. A couple of oh yeah, ago. yeah. <laughs> a couple of seasons ago, we played it straight, no no overt campiness. The material is or can be in itself laughable if someone is so inclined. So I don't really like to hoke it up, but. Uh, Unlike most of my other productions, instead of just documenting it in digital video, I had a live still photographer on the set all through rehearsals, uh, dress dress rehearsals and what have you. And so I've uh, got these thousands of still photographs from the killer shrews, and uh, I'm working right now to turn those photographs into a graphic novel. And uh, we'll see where that turns out. That sounds awesome. That sounds amazing. It was a I'd lot love of fun. It was, it, years and years ago, when I was a kid, a, a cousin of mine and I had seen that movie, new, in, in the theater, in one of my uncle's theaters. And on the way home in the back seat of his father's car, uh, we made up a song about the killer shrews. <laughs> uh, it was, uh, I, I, wouldn't, I won't go into detail, but it was very silly. And Johnny Simons, my co-producer on the theatrical scene, asked if I would be willing to write a musical score for uh, our production of The Killer Shrews. That was, uh, again, I, I think I mentioned, season before last. And I said, great idea. So I'm working on this score, and all of a sudden this idiotic juvenile song comes back to mind. I said, okay, I can do something with that. And we ended up with a theme song for the stage production, which is kind of goofy, that had been written in 19, what, 1959 by two kids who had just seen the picture. And uh, <laughs> so, and then I got to get, a, get the song to do double duty on the Dr. Demento show on top of that. Oh, wow. <laughs> so... <laughs> I was just trying to show how faulty memories can be. I saw the Killer Shrews in the theater on a double feature with the giant Gila monster. Oh, yeah, that's the and, way they were made to play. And uh, for years, until I saw it again, I thought it was in color. My memory was oh. that the Shrews were in color. Huh. Well, I don't know why. Certainly, but, probably because it was such a vivid impression, and you may have dreamed it in color. 
That's a good explanation as any. We'll take mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, uh, you, there's no tricking the subconscious mind. If, if a fragment of, of your subconscious perceived color, then, okay, who's to say it's not? But, of course, it was technically, yeah, shot in black and white. But, uh, yeah, those, those, were, those were back-to-back productions by a fellow who owned the biggest rock and roll radio station franchise in the country the guy who invented the so-called boss jock style of radio announcing and figured, well, if Roger Corman's making all these pictures that appeal to teenagers, I can do it right here in Dallas. There you go. And he did. And wasn't he in Killer Shrews? Uh, Gordon McClinton, yes. Uh-huh. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. He has a, he has a role. It, it's, you know, for a guy who hated kid and, uh, kids and embraced a very conservative form of politics, he was pretty hip. <laughs> opens its horror vault to release three macabre masterpieces. Bela Lugosi as Count Dracula, Lord High Priest of the Living Dead, begins a legend of fear as he claims the soul of his first victim with the mark of the vampire. Boris Karloff as the evil Fu Manchu, his passion for power twisting his brilliant mind as he revels in the horrors of human sacrifice and torture. Behind the mask of Fu Manchu. Frederick Marsh as the futuristic experimenter, Dr. Jekyll, using chemistry to expand his mind. Delving into the taboos of the unnatural. To free the primitive. Murderer, Mr. Hyde, in the screen's first classic portrayal of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Bella Lugosi, Mark of the Vampire. Boris Karloff, The Mask of Fu Manchu. Frederick March. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Torture. Terror. Together in a triple trip to the time when terror began. Now from MGM. Three immortal horrors never seen on the little screen. You know, we've got a game that we play here on Monster Kid Radio that... The listeners seem to dig. I enjoy it, and I'd like to play it with you, too. And Dr. Drake, you've played it before. We call it the Classic Five. Sure. And basically what it is is I've got a deck of cards here with a number of questions about classic monster movies. Uh, yes or no, this or that style questions. There's no wrong answers. It's just a way to kind of let our listeners learn a little bit more about our guests. And I would love to play the Classic Five with you, too, today. What do you think? Shoot away. Take it All down. right. Let me give it one more shuffle here. I've got this deck ready to go. Don't know if the listeners can hear that, but... Here we go. All right. 
some of these questions are new uh, since the last time I've had you on, Dr. Dreck, so uh, hopefully we don't have any repeats. Okay, card number one, question number one for both of you. Which is your favorite William Bodine film, Billy the Kid versus Dracula, or Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter? <laughs> Those are almost interchangeable. Uh, I, I, would go with, I would go with Billy versus Dracula merely for the presence of John Carradine. I'll go with that, too. I I was lucky enough, again, to see those as a double feature in the theater. Oh, wow. 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 <laughs> if I was playing along, that's what I'd go with right now, just because that's the one I've seen most recently. Mm-hmm. But I, I love the other one, too. So. Oh, they're, they're both a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, they are. All right. Card number two. What classic monster movie that never had one should have had a sequel? Mm-mm-mm. <laughs> well, that is subjective. Mm. I would right. say, <laughs> I, I, I would, I would have to say the man who laughs. Ooh. Uh-huh. Wow. Mm. I like that. Uh, there are tragic circumstances that probably would preclude a sequel, but, uh, Hey, anything can happen in the film business. Sure. <laughs> oh, that's a tough one. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I am so flummoxed here. Um, yeah, especially once you drop the man who laughs into the mix now, I'm I thinking, know. okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great film. Um, <laughs> wow. How about, uh, well, we were talking about it earlier, uh, some kind of sequel to Kronos. Mm. Oh. Wow. Okay. Hip, yeah, very I, hip. I a, I very, a very ahead of its time picture. Yes, yeah. yes. Wow. You're talking about the, the Newman picture, not the Del Toro Kronos. No, no, I'm talking about uh, the uh, Jeff Morrow. Yes, yes, yes a yeah. splendid picture. I, um, I, pro- I co-produced the soundtrack album on Kronos, working from the composer's original scoring tapes. And huh? my gosh, that music holds up well by itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've got that album. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Didn't they use yeah, the... Yeah, uh, that was, that was my that was that was my ex- opportunity to spend a long visit with Jeff Morrow. Ah, oh wow! The, the theme channel. song was uh, also in it the it the terror from outer space, right? The theme song of Kronos. I believe that's right. There were melodic yeah, I think elements. They did. Yeah, I think they double dipped there. Yeah, mm-hmm. it the terror from beyond space. There's one I'd love to see a sequel to. That'd be fun. Yeah, well, they sequelized oh, Alien. <laughs> yeah. I, guess Alien, I guess Alien was the sequel to It, the Terror from Beyond Space. <laughs> <laughs> Beyond Space. <laughs> but as, as often as Alien has been sequelized, you'd think It would merit something. But, Why not? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, card number three. Oh, boy. This one's tough for me. I, I don't know about you two. Mm. Colin Clive or Peter Cushing? Um, I'm equal on those. Uh, uh, Cushing had the luxury of developing a character over the long haul, where Clive had like two shots at it and did beautifully well. But uh, I, th- I think, I think, uh, given Cushing's unfair advantage of, of greater longevity in the business, I think probably his portrayal. Okay. Um, I think uh, first impressions mean a lot to you when you're a kid. So it's Colin Clive for me, even though yeah, I love Peter good. Cushing. Good. Okay. Yeah. Hard to, hard to, hard to call that one. I recently saw Bride of Frankenstein on the big screen uh, <laughs> earlier this month, mm. uh, and I just fell in love with Colin Clive 
But oh, it's tremendous. I, th- I think my listeners would revolt if I said anything other than Peter Cushing because they know I'm solidly on Team Cushing. So, oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. But, but I love Colin Clive. Just nothing t- taking nothing away from what he did. Oh, no. No, not at all. All right. <laughs> oh, gosh. Favorite Peter Laurie role? Mad Love. Oh, yeah. Although I, I am terribly partial to Mr. Moto, <laughs> which, which he didn't care for. George Turner was, was at a, attended a lecture by Peter Laurie in Chicago during the post-war 40s and um, went back to the green room for the handshake and autograph thing with Peter Laurie. And he said there was a lady from the audience that just gushing. said, oh, Mr. Laurie, I just, I remember all your Mr. Moto pictures. Laurie says, then forget them. <laughs> 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 but no, Mad Love definitely. That's that's a that's a splendid portrayal, and uh, not really what you expect it to be. Looking at the stills, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think for me, because it freaked me out as a kid, and it's probably his last best horror role was The Beast with Five Fingers. Oh yeah, yeah. That's you took good. mine, man. You took mine. Well, you know, uh, uh, of course, uh, you can always retreat to Island of Doomed Men, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. has the advantage of Charles Middleton on top of Laurie. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I would pick that one, too, The Beast with Five Fingers. Although, I've got a real soft spot for what he does in The Boogeyman Will Get You. Yeah. So, I like yes. him yeah. Seeing him take a pratfall is really something. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, the, the thing to remember about the great horror movie boogeyman, including Bela Lugosi, is that they were all essentially comedians at heart. Huh. And you look at what happens when they have a picture to do like The Boogeyman Will Get You, or, or maybe uh, a comedy of terrors, or uh, a picture of that nature, and you see they can do both. The ultimate lesson of, of a uh, career spent digging into this genre is that horror and humor are the conjoined sides of a coin. Right. It's our job to flip that. Yeah. It's it's our job to flip that coin and keep it in the air and sometimes hope it lands on its, on an edge. (laughs) Well, a lot of people uh, laugh when they're scared. Yeah. You betcha. You betcha. And that's, uh, that's healthy. Uh, I, uh, I, I got tired as a, even as a kid, I got tired of the, the apologetic arguments that, oh, no, horror movies are good for you because they they let you have a release. It was like, yeah, I know that. Quit trying to <laughs> apologize for it. It's a common value. Uh, Lovecraft said the oldest and strongest emotion is fear, and the oldest and strongest form of fear is fear of the unknown. Yep. And that's how there's so many of these pictures that we've mentioned here hold up so well that even if you're approaching them as an old favorite, there's still an element of the unknown to them. And the objective is to get just as scared as you can let yourself be and then uh, enjoy it so much that you get tickled. Nice work if you can get it. Yeah, true. (laughs) Final card. Final card. Card number five. Which movie do you prefer? John Sherwood's The Monolith Monsters or Jack Arnold's Monster on the Campus. Mm, mm, mm. Well, I'm partial to the Monolith Monsters, although, of course, I enjoy them both. Uh, I think uh, the Monolith Monsters has bigger ideas 
Uh, it gets into that. It, it's one of the cutting-edge environmental crisis films roughly from roughly about 10 or 11 years before uh, the word ecology started creeping into common use. And, of course, Arnold has got a big hand in the model of monsters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll go along with that one, too. It, although, strangely mm -hmm. enough, I when I saw the model of the monsters at the drive-in, I was a kid. And oh, I kept, wow. Through the whole thing, I was like, where are the monsters? Where are the monsters? Oh, oh I yeah. see rocks. Yeah. And then later on, of course, when I grew up and got a little smarter – uh, and saw it again, I said, this is a really interesting concept. I, I really like mm -hmm. this. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, and, and then, of course, Arnold never made a picture that doesn't carry some weight, uh, even, even a perceived throwaway like Monster on the Campus. There was a big deal picture based on Paddy Chayefsky's Altered States uh, about 1980. And mm -hmm. I would have to look up the name of the critic, but it was a, it was a review that I really took to heart reading it uh, as a fresh review just after Altered States had been released. And this uh, this critic says, you know, Monster on the Campus was so much more earnest. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and so was the Neanderthal Man. Another another one of those pictures I've I've been known to go to the mat for. But uh, <laughs> that's hey, a good you know, movie. No, that's a good one. Exactly. Exactly. And and the chance to watch Inspector Henderson play something that you wouldn't have expected of good old Inspector Henderson, that is Bob Shane, is not to be missed. Anyway, <laughs> yep. it's like I say, no accounting for taste, but uh, enjoy every moment of your own taste, and there you go. Uh, try to and try to inflict it on everybody else when you get there. <laughs> yeah, I'm right there with you guys on the Monolith Monsters. I think it's a more dangerous kind of movie with the way they do have these monsters mm -hmm. that are so non-human, non-thinking, above anything. Oh, yeah. It's just terrifying. I love Jack Arnold. I love his work. Uh, I, oh, yeah. I have not watched a Jack Arnold movie. I, yeah. the, the idea of, of, of petrified humanity. Right. Whoa. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Sam Katzman had addressed that in one of his Columbia spookers called The Man Who Turned to Stone mm. not long before that, and uh, I kind of took both those to heart. It's like, wait a minute, petrified people, what is this? Right. <laughs> That's good stuff. Well, that was the Classic Five. Thanks for playing, gentlemen. I, I always have fun doing it and breaking it out on the show. So thanks for indulging me at the very least. Great. <laughs> Lovely. Do I get a new refrigerator? Uh, you know, uh, I'll be in touch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> aboard. Why? Just to kill us? There's a usual reason an intelligent creature kills. It's hungry? What made you so certain it's intelligent, Colonel? Not just an animal. It opened the door to see compartment. In the silent void of outer space, puny man matches his cunning against a monster from Mars running rampant. Howling for all the flesh and blood on Earth. Ah! 
one thing that I wanted to do is one of our top three lists that we do here on Monster Kid Radio, where we talk about our top three favorite whatever. And given what Mike does with the Forgotten Horrors books, I thought it'd be fun to do a top three kind of obscure monster horror movie list. And when I suggested it, I thought, well, this will be fun. And then about 20 minutes later, I realized this is going to be really hard. <laughs> Naturally. Well, if it's not... Otherwise, why bother? Right. Now, as far as what obscure means, well, I mean, we're all going to bring our own definition to the table here. And and I think the diehard monster kids, which most of my audience is – know these movies pretty well. So I'm I'm curious to see what you guys come up with for your lists and – you know, if nothing else, I'll be taking notes, and, and especially when it comes to you, Mike, because of the Forgotten Horrors books, I know you're going to pull something out that I've not heard of. So I'm looking forward to <laughs> coming up with some new movies to add to my to-watch list. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I like to do like a, a countdown, a top three, and, you know, Mike, since this is your first time on the show, why don't we go ahead and have you kick us off? Well, I would have to go there with the Midnight Warning. More of a criminal conspiracy film than anything else, but plenty of horrific atmosphere about the vanishing tenant in the hotel and why he vanished. Uh, Bill Boyd, a great tough guy actor. Uh, A lot of the viewers will know him from a picture called Murder by the Clock at Paramount. Uh, Very emphatic private detective, tough guy, don't mess with me type presence. Mm. Uh, Number two, I've I've become partial all over again to uh, uh, Revenge of the Zombies. Oh, yes. uh, Wartime picture that is a lot more really obscure than its companion picture, King of the Zombies, uh, both featuring the inimitable comedian Mantan Moreland. Um, Revenge of the Zombies has... uh, has an explicit uh, hatred of Nazi Germany coursing through it, partly as a result of the directors having been a fugitive from the Third Reich. And, of course, John Carradine played a great Nazi. Oh, he was a great... In this case, he's, yeah. a, he's, he's a great Nazi surgeon, and he's cultivating zombies for Hitler. So uh, <laughs> that, kind of, that kind of thing. Uh, third, and here again, this, the list fluctuates from week to week, but I've... I've bec- become all enamored all over again with Hand of Death. Oh, the John Agar film? The John Agar oh, picture man. from the early 60s. This is the story of an experiment that backfired. I'll get them out. No, don't touch it. First thing we must do, Alex, is notify the authorities and get you to a hospital. No! What should we do? What can we do? I don't know. We just can't call the police and have them shot like an animal. Alex, it's been five hours since you injected that second area. Sir, for God's sake, answer. 
strange and chilling climax. Don't shoot him, please. Alex, don't run anymore. Please. An odd little throwaway the 20th Century Fox really didn't care enough about to keep it in circulation long. Uh, it was made by a subsidiary of Fox that Robert Lippert was in charge of. And, uh, of course, knowing, having, having known John, John Agar as a frequent interview subject and, and uh, been privileged to hear some of his reminiscences about the awkwardness of doing one's own stunt work, especially a picture like that, you know. <laughs> uh, it's, it's another environmental cautionary picture that probably doesn't have that great an environmental or social conscious, but it does, hey, don't mess with this chemical warfare, people. Here's what happened to you. You end up looking like the thing from the Fantastic Four. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let, let me ask you a couple questions about uh, Revenge of the, uh, the Zombies, actually, if you don't mind no nazis and zombies have been linked quite a bit over the years uh shockwaves and and, you know a number of other movies is this the first time it was done actually king of the zombies touches on it but it doesn't really make it explicit okay revenge of the zombies you get steve sackley newly arrived in hollywood from uh fleeing nazi germany he's got an opportunity to make a little low-budget programmer and he's got free reign to inform it with what social attitudes he may and he, he gives it full measure especially in i mentioned Carradine and of course Mantan Moreland but Bob Steele the cowboy actor is great as a as a, a very ambiguous character who might be a Nazi agent might be a good guy on the side of the law might be the law and he's got this great line of uh talking about John Carradine he says yeah I got a I'm paraphrasing. He says, got a lot of work to do before I start giving this Heine the once over. <laughs> and it's like, okay, that's the director talking. His contempt for his subject matter. And of course, it's not really a zombie movie. It's a, it's a, it's a political propaganda piece with trappings of a horror film. Mm-hmm. And more power to it. Fantastic. Well, uh, Dr. Dreck, what about you? What, what do you got uh, for a list? Well, um... One I have is the uh, Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake. Excellent. I'm actually going to be covering that here on the show in the near future with an indie filmmaker by the name of John Scurlock. Yeah, sure. It's going to be fun. Okay, I want to cut in here real quick because I actually got his name wrong. The filmmaker is Joe Sherlock, not Scurlock, Sherlock. And he is an independent filmmaker up here in the Oregon area, has directed over 15 movies, and he's actually the cinematographer on the Please let it come out here soon. Sequel to Manos, Manos Returns. Sorry, you got your last name wrong, Joe. But uh, yeah, it's Sherlock, people. Sherlock. Get it right, Derek. Well, I'm going to try to get it right because I'm going to cut in here again in a second. So back to the conversation. For for years, I hadn't uh, seen it. I'd seen pictures. And uh, in the days when they used to have the bubblegum cards that would have monster pictures and stuff, mm-hmm. I would see a, a couple of pictures <laughs> from it. And I was like, what is this movie? So I never oh, got yeah. to see it. Never got to see it until we started to get the UHF stations here, and I knew who Henry Daniel was by that time. Good old Henry Daniel. I used to see that face on Bacardi rum billboards all the time. <laughs> uh, and if you and if you like if you like Four Skulls, be sure you see his Well of Doom episode from Thriller. Oh yeah, I've got that entire series yeah. on TV. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, good choice. He looks like London After Midnight, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. 
Yeah, he does. Yeah. Huh. Definitely. So uh, that is a very strange movie, especially at the end, when you find mm-hmm. out his little secret. Yeah. <laughs> um, probably the second one would be, um, well, it's kind of gotten semi-famous, but obviously The Devil Bat is... Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. It's the best. Uh, it's, it's strange that uh, the best Lugosi low-budget movie is at PRC and not Monogram, in my opinion. Because The Devil Bat is just... First time I saw it, I, I thought uh, Lugosi's really kind of playing this tongue-in-cheek. Very uh, tongue-in-cheek, and he's got yeah. that beautiful, bitter monologue that could be autobiographical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which he almost repeated in Bride of the Monster. <laughs> Bride of the Monster, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And how did Martin Landau win an Oscar? Well, by channeling Bride of the Monster. <laughs> Simple. I mean, everybody should have such a muse. But yeah, the the Devil Bat has, I think, the has the pure form of that embittered monologue and uh, his, you know, selling out to a perfume company. Uh, I think he may be talking about Universal Pictures there. <laughs> sure. <laughs> And I always was impressed by the bat itself. People may make fun of it, but I, I just like the way it would barrel out of that window and just ram into people's necks. I thought that was mm-hmm. pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. So, and the, nice. the, you know, the other one is, it's borderline science fiction. That's all right. Superman and the Mole Men. Oh, lovely. Yes. That's a fun film. It's so fun. Especially considering today. It was really ahead of its time. It was ni- early About 1950s. environmental concerns, and yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, Superman uh, holding back the lynch mob from uh, That's right. know, attack- attacking this uh, thing that they don't understand what it is. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And uh, it was just like saying something about McCarthyism at the time, really. Yeah. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. it still rings true today. It's, uh, it's a picture of lasting power, and you know, as far as I'm concerned... You want Superman, <clears throat> you go to George Reeves in the movies and Wayne Boring in the funny books. Yeah, George Reeves was my Superman. He always will be. Very consistent, <laughs> very consistent uh, with one another. And uh, mm-hmm. if you consider that Boring was drawing much of the Superman feature in the uh, comics strips and comic books during Reeves' period of, of playing the character, it was like, wow, that's 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 good cognitive cross cross talk there mm. and uh, you look at george reeves and you think my gosh i sure am glad he's on the good guy's side because he looks <laughs> tough i always thought he was underrated too as an yes. actor yeah. oh yeah 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 he's he's he played great gangsters uh did a picture at columbia called the uh, the good humor man uh which is kind of ironically uh, it's not a captain marvel movie but the story is about a Captain Marvel fan club, and uh, and George Reeves has this lovely gangster role in it. And just, wait a minute, what's Superman versus Captain Marvel? I think that's the <laughs> subtext that may or may not have been intended. But uh, uh, yeah, Reeves Reeves is terrific. Yeah, I've seen him in one of the Mike Shane movies, and he was in a Charlie Chan Dead Men Tell. And you get to mm-hmm. see him in different roles, and you appreciate him a lot more. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Well. Typecasting can be uh, a blessing or a curse, and in his case, it was both. Mm. Well, those are some good picks. I like Superman in the Mole Men a lot. I did talk about that here on the show a few years ago with uh, the host of Comic Book Central, and that was a lot of fun just to kind of look at that. And then, you know, these days with Superman being in the movies now and all that, just the the differences. But man, the George Reeves portrayal was just so spot on. 
and and that's the mm-hmm. Superman that and because I grew up in the eighties, Christopher Reeve does it for me too. But George Reeves, solid, solid work. Sure. The evil that men do lives after them. Beware. From beyond the grave comes blood-freezing horror as an ancient curse brings paralyzing terror to all who know the terrible secret of the four skulls of Jonathan Drake. Jonathan Drake, of all men, should know how futile that would be. Since you know that I'm dead, you know that you can't kill me. Don't wait! Wait, Dad! Dad! yours <laughs> you know my, my my top three uh it, it fluctuates like you guys were saying and you can come back to me in about an hour and i'll probably have swapped things around a little bit sure so <laughs> uh but one of them on my list is actually a movie that i became aware of i think listening to the forgotten horrors podcast and that is not necessarily a horror movie per se it's more of a thriller but it's got karloff in it so i'm saying it counts mm. uh 1937 is a night key Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, I it's, really it's very, enjoy that film. Well, and it is a science fictional film by uh, a small stretch concerning technology and and uh, crime prevention uh, yeah. electronics. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. There, thanks for oh, justifying yeah. my including, including it on my show. And there are, you know, I mean, it's fantastic inventions. I'll, I'll, use, I'll use this new invention to disable my old invention. There, there and, you go. <laughs> Great, no, great. It, it, never it, seen that movie. Really? Oh man, it's I really enjoy it. It's not necessarily a Karloff picture, but I mean he's in it. It's really more it's about in the one of the out. universal boxes, and it's very well worth the uh, yeah worth the finding out. Night Key, Night City, Night World. So many nights, so many movies with nights in the title with Boris Karloff in them. I actually wasn't talking about Night Key. I meant to be referring to the 1932 film. Night World, which does have Boris Karloff in it, but he's not one of the main characters. It's more of a Lou Ayres, May Clark film. It is a criminal thriller kind of movie. The entire movie takes place inside a nightclub over the course of one long night. A couple of different stories kind of weaving in and out of each other. It's a fascinating movie. Really enjoyed it. And this is the one that I learned about by listening to the Forgotten Horrors podcast. So Night Key is a good movie, too. Don't get me wrong, but Night World is the one that I meant to talk about. Okay, now we're going to get back to the conversation where I'm going to try to tell Michael H. Price he's wrong about a title. Yeah, don't don't listen to me. Listen to him. So that would be on there. And because I'm mentioning it, thank you for bringing it up on your podcast because without it, I wouldn't have even heard of this movie. And uh, that was was fantastic. Um, Another one that I really like... I feel like this is where it gets a little difficult. How do you define obscure? But I really like uh-huh. 1957's The Vampire. Yes. Oh, yeah. Also known as Mark of the Vampire. Actually, this one is uh, the not, not Mark of the Vampire. I don't, unless they also had that title for it as well. But this is the on one. TV. You're, talk, 
You're talking about the John Beale picture. Oh, I yeah. am. Yeah, did it use Mark of the Vampire yes, as a title as well? I saw that on television in the early '60s as Mark of the Vampire, oh, okay. which caused so no I, end of uh, confusion because because of the com- title in common with with the 1935 MGM picture. But yeah, uh, okay. uh, the Vampire is is the formal title now, and it um, it's it's a it's a kind of a Jekyll and Hyde takeoff. It is, you know, for a movie called Vampire, it it's not the you know turning to a bat flying you know whatever it's it's more Jekyll and Hyde I think well yeah and and of course right about that same time Gramercy had done a, a Dracula picture with Francis Lederer yes um, and I don't recall whether those were on a double bill originally but they they complement one another uh, one is a science fictional take on on a vampire or reversion mm-hmm. myth. And the other is a straight Dracula picture. And I was like, well, okay, so which one is the vampire? Well, they're both the vampires. Technically, yeah. You know, you know. Loosen, up and, <laughs> loosen up and enjoy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a movie that I really enjoy. I love the soundtrack. Gerald Freed did the music for both that one and Return of Dracula. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm also a big classic Star Trek fan. So anytime I can hear some Gerald Freed music, it makes me real happy. You bet. So th- that's also there. But the, the other one that I want to talk about is a movie from 1967 called Island of the Doomed. It's also got a few other titles like Man Eater of Hydra. Uh, it's directed by Mel Wells. And Cameron mm-hmm. Mitchell plays a mad scientist. And, yeah. you know, Cameron Mitchell is one of these guys that his career probably could have gone a little differently toward the end if he had made some other choices in his life. But I really enjoy watching Cameron Mitchell. He's charismatic. Oh, I like him. He's, he's kind of like the male Meryl Streep. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> way to put int- it. Got that intensity and versatility and is often mistaken as a bland personality. Uh, mm-hmm. No, Mitchell, uh, Mitchell could uh, carry a picture of that nature. And, of course, you know, he, did, he, was, he was another John Garfield in his day. And, and he did a variety of different genres. I mean, he did a lot of Westerns, and he's wonderful in those. Uh-huh. He did at least one episode of Night Gallery, I believe. Um, yeah. Just Island of the Doom, for me, it's, it's carnivorous plants have always been a, something that I enjoy seeing in film. Oh, yeah, yeah, the, the Triffid Syndrome. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh-huh. the Triffid Syndrome. <laughs> yeah. Funnily enough, I've never talked about the Triffids on the show. One of these days I need to. That's good. Uh, it's a good story to uh, to spring a discussion off of. Especially if you get into the many, many related or coincidentally related pictures. And I love that the movie featuring carnivorous plants is directed by the guy who played Mushnik in the original <laughs> Little Shop, Shop of, of Horrors. Horrors. Yeah, you betcha. And that, that's just fun to think about. I also keep hearing, and I haven't for a little while, but I used to work with a company that owned the rights to this movie. And there was talk at one point of putting it out on Blu-ray. Mm. Uh, and if that happens, I'm snatch it right up Knock and I'll certainly yeah. talk about it on the show. Yeah, Excellent. I, I Really enjoy that film. It's also called The Bloodsuckers and a few other things. And I think Elvira hosted it at one point. So most people might be aware of it under the Maneater of Hydra title because that's what she used when she showed it. <laughs> Seems to me there is a uh, – have to look that up again. I believe there is a page uh, at the Internet Movie Database devoted to <laughs> agricultural horror films. Uh, okay. And and of, of course that that would that would fit our present selection very well. But be surprised how many how many things there are besides the day of the Triffids. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I, we did do uh, Navy versus the Night Monsters at one point here on the show. Uh-huh. And that, that's another one of those, you know, carnivorous, evil, man-eating plant things. It's mm-hmm. it's something that, I mean, there's so many plants around. This is terrifying to think about for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the segment in Dr. Terror's House of Horrors with the plant. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. Well, so that's, yeah. that's a total category unto itself, I suppose. Well, you, can, you can never, never exhaust the possibilities. There you go. I have to ask both of you, when you go to, you know, Dr. Dreck, when you're going to show something, or Mike, when you're going to write about something in Forgotten Horrors, where do you find the titles or the or the movies themselves? Like, if they're obscure, you know, it's not like you can go and hop on Amazon and buy them. I mean, or how do you get your hands on them? Well, I, uh, I keep uh, written accounts of everything I've ever screened, going way back to the, you know, schoolboy days. Uh, that's okay. that's one uh, unique source. Uh, plus, I, I maintain uh, George Turner and I wrote a, did a lot of uh, pro bono work for the American Film Institute during the 1970s, uh, including many chapters of the uh, American Film Institute's catalog of motion pictures produced in the United States. And uh, as a consequence, uh, we received in return the rights to use our own work on behalf of the American Film Institute. And, uh, and then, of course, there's, there's my old pal Phil Hardy's excellent Encyclopedia of Horror at Movies, which uh, provides title suggestions, even. Uh, and, you know, you might have a, might have a, a comprehensive memory, but uh, you'd be amazed how many things you disremember or forget or lapse on. And uh, it's nice to have memory joggers like that. What about you, Dr. Drack? Well, for me, uh, to find a title, I, I'll go through the Forgotten Horrors series of books. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we made them. And then I'll um, usually can f- find them on either the Internet Archive. Sometimes they're on YouTube. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's the uh, distributors that are still around, like Sinister Cinema, that may have um, some obscure stuff sometimes. Oh, yeah. Uh, if you look around enough, you can usually find them in some form, maybe not in the best form. It's good to have resources like that. George Turner often lamented uh, our choice of a title for the original book, Forgotten Horrors. He said, well, well, if we remember them, then they're not forgotten anymore. It's like, well, uh, I disagree. It's like the Pygmalion syndrome in reverse. Uh, we call them forgotten, so other people won't. Hmm. Oh, there you go. Mighty, mighty glad to see the uh, the. Uh, uh, I guess you, I guess influence these books have had over the long term. Uh, we certainly don't profess to be the be all or end all or uh, alpha and omega of, of uh, genre scholarship, but uh, it's nice to see when uh, when people find something worth. Uh, worth talking about and you know keeping us in business because that's uh, uh, it's it's that it's that uh, attitude of acceptance and interest that that uh, makes it possible for me to devote you know many thousands of hours to this kind of work you were saying near the beginning of this conversation that you know uh, th- there are many people kind of tackling the same movie and that sort of thing and the way i've always kind of approached at least with podcasting and that sort of thing is that you know i might talk about a movie that has been talked about ad nauseum on a dozen other podcasts 
but I feel like there's always room for one more good one. There's always room for one more good conversation That's right. about a topic. That's and right. yeah. the Forgotten Horrors books, listeners, even if you've read or, or studied these movies and, and think you're done, what the Forgotten Horrors books have brought are, are just a different take on a lot of these films for me. Uh, there's some insights that I've picked up that just I, I hope you've picked up on that just by hearing Mike talk here on the show. There you the go. guy knows his stuff, <laughs> and he's producing the books. They're they're one of the good. They're some of the good ones. <laughs> That's what we do, and I appreciate the attention. That's nice. That's always a pleasure. And then there's Doctor Drek. <laughs> that's not how i meant that that's not how i meant that at all <laughs> there's dr dragon one of the uh, best in the business when it comes to horror hosting and you've got two books now is there a third one coming maybe uh not that i know of <laughs> okay okay i didn't know if you're gonna keep going or not because i've enjoyed reading them keep them coming uh, yeah yes yeah. i thought that uh, uh considering we're talking about obscurity and i don't know i don't know if uh, if derek is heard of this particular movie, but I know that uh, Michael can expound upon it. I have always been intrigued by a so-called lost film called In Gaggy. Oh, In Gaggy, yeah, sure. Can you exactly. expla- explain that to us? We'll be devoting one of the Forgotten Horrors podcasts to In Gaggy uh, before long. Uh, yeah, I, uh, you mean the, the origins of it or the uh, controversy of it? It's, it's, a, really? it's, a, uh, it's a bogus documentary from 1930 pretending to uh, represent a safari into the wilds of Africa. And, of course, uh, the authentic safari footage was pirated from a 1914 doc, uh, private documentary oh, wow. that generated some lawsuits. And the discovery of the tribe of of women-loving apes uh, was, in fact, soundstage footage uh, shot on a back lot in Hollywood with good old Charlie Gamora playing his standard ape. Long considered a lost film, often censored, many, many regional and local boards of censorship uh, butchered the thing en route to allowing it to play. The Ku Klux Klan used it as a an indoctrination tool at one point. Oh, no. We know that fairly well, although I don't think the filmmakers had such crass intentions in mind. And then not too many years ago, a print turned up uh, in the UCLA Film Archive. Oh, my God. I did not know that. Wow. It's it's censored print. It, it is missing the abundant... Uh, bare-breasted native women footage but it's uh, pretty intact and of course the whole point of Engadji is to watch Charlie Gamora ramp, uh, rampaging around in his in his excellent gorilla costume right uh, I wonder if we'll ever be uh, able to see it uh, well uh, there are I, I think there's some footage excerpts on uh, what's the name uh, classic horror film board website Okay. Yeah. Wow, I had no idea it had been a, a printed turned up. That's amazing because I've seen I've seen the so-called sequel, but yeah. oh yeah, that that was that has nothing to do with right. Gadget except the except the allusion to an ape man being responsible for the mayhem. And uh, so there you go. But uh, <laughs> wow. Anyway, nice uh, nice little round of discussion there. 
Yeah. Huh. Well, I want to thank you both again for being part of the show. I, I think the listeners are going to dig it, and I'd love to have you both back on again, either together or separately. Uh, Dr. Dreck, you're, you're always welcome here on the show, of course. And I cannot wait to read the next few books uh, of Forgotten Horrors. I mean, they're wonderful uh, tomes to have on your bookshelf. Monster kids need to read them. Well, nice. Nice to know. Thank you so much. And the podcast is still going strong, I assume? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we developed a much higher profile than I had anticipated. I think we've been doing it for, what, six years now. Uh, so we're really old enough to know better, but that doesn't stop us. Uh, just uh, just a, uh, uh, getting away with as much fun as you can get away with, and sooner or later the statute of limitations expires, and, and there you are. <laughs> Well, I'll make sure there's a link to the podcast in the show notes, and uh, we'll make sure there's a link to everything Dr. Dreck is up to as well. And gentlemen, once again, Splendid. thanks for being part of the show. Delighted. Thank you. Mighty good. Huge thanks to the two Michaels that joined me this week on the show and giving us one heck of a chat. This was a lot of fun to record, to listen to again, and to edit, and I hope you guys and gals enjoyed it as well. If you want to hear more Michael H. Price, check him out at the Forgotten Horrors podcast. You can find it at ForgottenHorrors.Podbean.com or look it up in iTunes or wherever you download and listen to your podcast. It's there. It's a great show. Monster Kid Radio heartily approves. They do an episode a month, typically, and I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Also, Michael Leggy. The man is a monster kid machine. He's got two books out there, and I know he said he's not interested in doing a third, but my fingers and tentacles are crossed. Maybe he will do a third as well. I'll make sure there's a link to what he's doing movie-wise at SideshowCinema.net. You can also find a lot of Dr. Dreck material on YouTube, and of course, you can stream and even buy some of his movies through Amazon. I'm going to make sure there's links to his books as well as the Forgotten Horrors books in the show notes. So if you are interested in picking up the books, please use the link in the show notes because we get like 50 cents per transaction. It's part of Amazon's affiliate program. If you do check out the Forgotten Horrors podcast, drop them a line and let them know that you heard about it here on Monster Kid Radio. Thanks again, Michael and Michael. Be prepared for terror as the screen unleashes the greatest double, all-monster, earth-shaking shock show. Cronus and She-Devil. Cronus, the most horrifying monster of all time, sucking up the world's lifeblood and atomic energy to keep his fiendish world of outer space alive. And She-Devil, hell's most gorgeous demon. Hey, comic book fans, I'm Joe Stuber, producer and host of Comic Book Central, where each and every week I welcome a legendary talent to the Comic Book Central lair to talk about bringing comic books to life. Greetings, true believers. This is Stan Lee. When do you think the Academy is going to wise up and create a special Oscar category for best cameo? I don't know. They're just asleep on their feet. Maybe your show, maybe this interview will be the turning point. She is Erin Gray. Erin, welcome to the show. I ended up being a contract player making, I think it was $600 a week. Gil was doing great. He was making the big bucks. You got the posters, though. You got <laughs> yes. the posters. Come I on. look better in white spandex. What can I say? <laughs> hey, this is Michael Rosenbaum. Lex Luthor from Smallville. Make sure you listen to this guy's show. He sounds like a good guy. People should listen to you, Joe. 
Catch the very latest episodes at the website, comicbookcentral.net. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, like it on Facebook, follow it on Twitter, and be sure to join me each and every week for Comic Book Central. This is Dean Kane, Superman from Lois and Clark, and you're listening to Comic Book... Comic Book... Comic Book Central. Where comic books come to life. Excelsior. of the Triffids, when terror reigned from the sky. The day of the Triffids, when the Earth orbits into a nightmare. When the solid world of everyday reality disintegrates. The whole population is driven by fear towards insanity. The day of the Triffids, when destruction closes in from every side. Pilot, is he blind too? Blind? 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 It's going to be starvation, fire, pestilence. Anyone caught in the middle of it doesn't stand a chance. I think we ought to get out of here and go on to Spain. How can you know it's any better there? I don't. It doesn't seem to have any central nervous system. Then how does it move? All plants move. And they don't usually pull themselves out of the ground and chase you. You have never been married? No. Why? I guess I've never been in one spot long enough to get caught. And now you are saddled with a family. It might have its points. The day of the Triffids, when law and order are overwhelmed in an avalanche of terror. know what more I can add to the conversation about Frankenstein that hasn't already been said when it comes to the original 1931 Universal film. Now, it wasn't the first horror movie Universal did. That distinction, well, if you're looking at sound pictures, is Dracula, and silent film-wise, of course, they had Phantom and Hunchback and a handful of other things. But Frankenstein is really one of the big ones, and I'm not entirely sure why that is. I mean, I love me some Dracula, and I love my Bela Lugosi. Maybe it's because Dracula is the flat-out villain, whereas Frankenstein, even though he's a monster and he's responsible for some deaths, he's kind of an innocent, and maybe it's easier to project ourselves into the monster, especially as it's played by Boris Karloff as opposed to being able to project ourselves into Dracula. Maybe that's the connection and that's why Frankenstein is so beloved. How did Frankenstein come to be? Well, Dracula was a success. Universal was looking for the next big monster movie to make and well, Frankenstein was kind of a no-brainer. 
<laughs> I didn't even mean to make that pun. Is that a pun? A joke? A re- anyway. When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. (laughs) To shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. (laughs) To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about. The spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Don't touch that! I think everybody knows that at one point Lugosi himself was actually set to play Frankenstein. The monster, that is. Although, he would have made a really good Dr. Frankenstein. I love him as a mad scientist, but that's probably a whole different type of conversation. Uh, Lugosi as the monster would have been really interesting, especially since the makeup was a little different. Now, there are people who have reported that it looked a lot like the character from The Gollum, another silent film, which in my mind doesn't get enough attention, which wasn't exactly what the studio executives were looking for. Now, if you read the original novel, the description of Frankenstein's monster is totally different than what Universal gave us. There's no bolts. There's no flat top head. So what was created for Universal is unique to Universal itself. And while Lugosi would later wear the makeup, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks, the original makeup tests, which really don't exist anymore, they didn't survive, unfortunately, just didn't cut it. Also, Robert Flory was tapped to direct the film, and he was attached to the project with Lugosi. When Universal decided to go a different way, Lugosi and Flory were put aside. They were given a different project, Murders in the Room Morgue, which, again, doesn't get talked about enough. And James Whale was tapped to direct the film. And I'm glad that happened. Even though Whale probably had a lot more freedom on the next film, The Bride of Frankenstein, which we'll talk about next week with Chris McMillan. If he didn't do Frankenstein and lay the groundwork for this pseudo-gothic universal thing... I mean, look at the set design of this film. Look at the way Whale uses the camera here. He gets a bit freer in a few years, but the way he shoots this film... It's fantastic. It looks good. It feels good. The way Karloff plays the monster is one of innocence. There is a sense of abandonment with him as he doesn't understand people being repulsed by him. He he doesn't understand the rejection by his father figure, his creator. It's moving. Something else cool about the film. The 
creation scene. All those mechanics designed by Kenneth Strickfadden. And those machines, that machinery, would continue to be seen on film for years. It was used in Frankenstein. It would turn up in Young Frankenstein. It would even turn up in 1973's Blackenstein. That equipment made the rounds and had one heck of a career. <laughs> Strickfadden is somebody I admittedly don't know a heck of a lot about. I need to learn more about him, and I think I might even have a book about him on my shelf over here that I just haven't cracked open yet. But what he did with the electrical equipment and the special effects, it's amazing. Now, he also worked on Wizard of Oz and the Monsters. I mean, the man had skill and talent, and Whale spotlighted it so well in 31's Frankenstein. Like I said, there's not much more I can add to the conversation. We've been talking about 1931's Frankenstein, well, ever since Monster Kid Radio launched, uh, yeah, so, and, and even before then, obviously, other podcasts and film scholars and historians and authors and DVD commentarians have had their say. What I want to mention is a book, a novel, a fiction novel, a mystery book by an author by the name of Lauren D. Estelman. Now, Lauren D. Estelman was somebody that I didn't know about until I discovered this book. It's called Alive. It is the third novel in a series of Valentino mysteries. Valentino is a film archivist who also gets involved with some detective work because he's always looking for old films. And I am fascinated by that character. I think it was Tracy Morris from Disney Indiana who actually introduced me or at least showed this book over to me and I was hooked. The cover is a young woman, modern day, staring at a movie poster Alive, rare footage, monstrous murder. Bela Lugosi is the Frankenstein monster. Now, the design of the Frankenstein monster that you see on this poster, I guess, this imagined a movie poster, he does have some Lugosi features, not a lot. He's mostly in the Frankenstein monster makeup. It's enough to know that it's not Karloff. And what I like about this book, as well as the other Valentino books, it's clear that Esselman knows his film history, his Hollywood history. I actually just finished reading uh, another book by him called the Rocky Mountain Moving Picture Association, which is set during the silent film era. And again, there's a mystery and there's some thriller elements and that sort of thing. I enjoy his work a lot. I love reading stories and fictions and mysteries that take place or involve the production of some of these movies that we love so much, which is another reason why I love Dwight Kemper's work so much. In the novel, Valentino has this ability it's not like a superpower. This is not urban fantasy. This is real world detective stuff, but he's got a very vivid imagination and he loves classic cinema. So every once in a while, he'll dream the history of one of these movies, meaning he dreams being in the screening room while the universal executives are watching the test footage of Lugosi as Frankenstein. And it's very well written. It's almost as if that's really how it could have been. And that, touched me that moved me because i would have loved to have seen that footage i think anybody would love to see the footage the novel itself is about this makeup footage turning up and who's trying to get their hands on it and what they're going to do with it i recommend alive you don't have to read the other books in this series to get it to follow along like i said i came in and was able to read it from the get-go and didn't feel lost. Now, of course, I've gone back and read his previous two books, uh, his next book, and then I currently have his most recent one on my Kindle waiting to be read after I get through two or three other books because you know there's only so much time in a day. Would Lugosi have made a stronger Frankenstein in the 1930s and 1931? I don't know. 
did he really have a problem with not wanting to speak? And did he have a lot of resentment for not taking the role? Eh, it's hard to say. There have been stories that seem to indicate that all the stories that we've heard are all rumors and blown way out of proportion, or that maybe they're incredibly accurate. And the comments that Landau, as Lugosi, made about Karloff in the movie Ed Wood are not accurate enough, that there was really a lot of resentment there. So, I don't know. I do think there might have been some regret, but having never spoken with either men, <laughs> obviously, it's kind of hard to say. I can't say for myself for sure one way or the other, although I do know that if he did play the monster, the Frankenstein legacy would be very, very different today. And I wonder if Lugosi's career would have been different too. If you haven't seen 1931's Universal Frankenstein, what? Why? Wh huh? Why are you? <laughs> what? I, I don't understand. You need to see this film. This is one of the bona fide classics, not just of horror cinema, but in cinema period. There's a reason why the Karloff Frankenstein monster is such an iconic image and is turned up on postage stamps and gets caricatured in cartoons and is still seen today as the definitive portrayal of the Frankenstein monster. Check it out. And even if you have seen it before, check it out again. Now I mentioned that next time I'm going to be talking about the Bride of Frankenstein with Chris McMillan. You see at the beginning of the year, a theater up in Vancouver, Washington was screening Bride of Frankenstein for free. Well, I'm not going to miss out on an opportunity like that. And Chris and I drove up there and we recorded a little bit for the show and recorded a little bit for a YouTube program that's going to be launching next week as well. I'll talk about that more here at the end of the show. Okay, it's the end of the show. So let's talk about YouTube. <laughs> uh, Monster Kid Radio is going to be pushing into the YouTube realm. I mentioned this a little bit last week. I'm going to mention it again here. Look up Monster Kid Radio on YouTube. We're real easy to find. Just type Monster Kid Radio into the search bar and you'll find it. it it's right there. I'm going to ask you to subscribe to the channel if you have a YouTube or Google account because I need to get a number of subscribers to be part of YouTube's partner program. We need a thousand subscribers. Now, as of this recording, we only have 92, which is fine because I don't have a lot of video content up yet. But like I said, next week when we have Chris on to talk briefly about Bride of Frankenstein, I'm going to be releasing a video as well. The YouTube series will be excitingly named Monster Kid Radio on YouTube. <laughs> uh, also, the opening graphics, I'm very pleased with how this looks and so touched. That previous guest of Monster Kid Radio, Joseph Schultz, put together an amazing intro for the YouTube series I'm going to be launching. So, if nothing else, check it out for that. Of course, nothing's going to change here on the podcast. The podcast is still going to do what we do best, and that's talking about the classic and sometimes not so classic with, well, anybody that I can get on the show. I want to thank you for listening to this show, this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I said it at the top of the show. I'm going to say it again. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And our voicemail is 503-479-5657. 503-4795-MKR. If you have any thoughts about anything that we talked about on this episode or the previous 350 whatever, please call in and let us know. And we'll talk about it on a future episode of the show. Of course, this can be found at monsterkidradio.net where you're going to find links to everything that we've talked about here on the show. Show notes to the books that we talked about, the YouTube channel. Uh, everything is going to be right 
there waiting for you. Of course, we also have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. Please consider liking the page and joining the group. And if you're an iTunes user, please consider leaving us an honest review in the iTunes store. We actually have recently received a few more over the past few weeks. And amazingly, thank you. They're all five-star ratings. Thank you to JJ Whitney, uh, SLSTLKR2, and Nick. Nick Hatcher actually left us a comment as well as on a review as well. And I appreciate it quite a bit. Thank you for doing that. If you are a user of iTunes, please consider popping over there and giving us an honest review yourself. It means a lot to me and it helps with whatever algorithms iTunes and Apple is using these days. As of right now, we have 91 reviews and I would love to get us to 100. We'll do something special if we get to 100 reviews. I don't know what that'll be yet, but it, it'll be special. Next week on the show... Honestly, I don't know what's going to happen yet. I think I'm going to record this weekend when I get to go see King Kong and Vampire at the Northwest Film Center. Yeah, that's happening this weekend, this Sunday. So if you're in the Portland, Oregon area, I would love to bump into you there. As I said in the conversation with the two Michaels, King Kong will be shown from a 35 millimeter print. It's playing at 2 p.m. on Sunday, January 28th at the Northwest Film Center. After King Kong, they're showing a movie called Shattered Journey into a Silent Past. I don't know much about that one. I'm going to skip that one, but I'm going to come back for the 7 p.m. showing of Vampire. I have never seen Vampire in its entirety. I've seen clips, of course, and it's a silent film from the 30s, and it's in the public domain, but I've never seen the movie from start to finish. I can't wait to check this one out, especially since the cinematography is by a guy by the name of Rudolf, I don't know if it's Matty, Matty, M-A-T, and then E with a little oof at the top of it. He was the man who did the cinematography behind the movie The Passion of Joan of Arc, which is another legendary silent film that is gorgeous. So I'm eager to see this on the big screen as well. If you're going to be there, I'd love to meet you. I'll have my recorder with me between King Kong and Vampire. I'm not really sure what I'm going to be doing, but it'll be something in downtown Portland. And Chris McMillan tells me he's going to be there as well. So if you've ever wanted to meet Chris, now's your chance. If you don't hear a recording from that, on the next episode of Monster Kid Radio, I've got a number of other things in the digital can. I've got more audio from last year's Monster Bash. I have a Monster Kid Radio crash from when I went to go see The War of the Worlds here uh, last summer, I think is what when it was at the uh, local IMAX-ish theater. Bottom line is, there is content coming next week. Stay tuned. I'll announce it on Monster Kid Radio as well as the Facebook page. Between now and then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Rabbit Ears that belongs to the band Blue Wave Theory. It can be found on their album Superstorm, which you can head over to bluewavetheory.bandcamp.com and pick up for $7.00. 11 tracks. They're all good. I happen to like this one a lot. They can also be found on Facebook. Just look up Blue Wave Theory or go to their website at bluewavetheory.com and let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. Thank you for listening, everybody. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao.